Um, I have really strongly felt, and I've even experienced myself, that God wants to draw near to us. And I believe that. If there's one thing to have in your mind as we're going through, it is that God wants to draw near to you today. I, um, as most of you know, I'm a father to three daughters, and I, I, I hate mess, right? I don't like to be unclean. I don't like mess. And I particularly hate it when my kids have eaten dinner and they're covered in tomato sauce and grease and then they want to like touch me or hug me. I am literally like, no, no, go and wash, go and clean up, then you can have a hug. And actually, whilst, whilst that hopefully doesn't cause some sort of complex in my children as they grow older, God as a father is nothing like that. Actually, with all of our mess, with all of our problems, no matter what is going on in our lives, he embraces us and draws us in. And it's not that we need to get cleaned up first, that with all of our mess, with all of our muck, he draws us in. So I want you to know and be expectant that Jesus wants to draw near to you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to read from John chapter 12 and verses 12 through to 26. Okay, it says this, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to him shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first the disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They said to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. You know, this year in Great Britain, we have had a rare, perhaps even once in a lifetime event, and that is the coronation of a king. So on the 6th of May, King Charles was crowned king. And if you, like me, are under the age of 70, this is probably the only coronation that you have ever witnessed in our nation. And I think that for the most part, this met our expectations. It certainly met my expectations of what a coronation should look like. The, the would-be king rides through London in a golden carriage from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, he is surrounded by horses, and there's a grand military procession. Bands are playing, flags are being waved. People are lining up in their thousands to see the coming king. Prince Charles is adorned in robes. People of power and significance have traveled all over the world to come and attend 
his coronation. There are prime ministers, world leaders, the top celebrities in the world, anyone who is anyone is in attendance. Charles is then given the sovereign orb, which symbolizes the Christian world, the scepter with the cross, representing kingly power and justice, the scepter with the dove, also called the rod of equity and mercy. He is then recognized as the king. He takes the oath of the king. He is then anointed with oil to be the king. And finally, he is crowned king. St. Edward's crown made in 1661, made of solid gold, set with rubies, amethysts, sapphires, garnets, topazes, and tourmaline gems weighing two kilos, is placed upon his head. And finally, he sits on his golden throne, which is over 700 years old, and with that, we have a new king. And this lavish event probably cost about £100 million to put on. Now you'll notice that there are some similarities between the coronation of King Charles and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And some of this will come from the fact that our nation has a strong history in Christianity. But don't believe for a second that they are the same thing. They are fundamentally different. What we see from the coronation of King Charles is what we all expected. It's a lavish event costing millions of pounds with gold and silver and jewels and robes adorned all the way throughout. It is a lavish display of grandeur and power. But with Jesus, something isn't as we expect. There seems to be a sense of lavishness, of exaltation, of power that seems to be missing. As we saw last week in John 11, Jesus is anointed with oil, but this isn't the oil from a 450-year-old golden ampulla in the shape of an eagle. This was the oil or perfume from an ordinary woman. This was a woman who, this perfume we're told was worth a year's wages. This would have been her life savings, her pension fund, her nest egg, and she broke it and poured it all out to anoint Jesus at great cost to herself. But perhaps the biggest and most surprising thing is that Jesus is riding on a donkey. He's not in a golden air-conditioned carriage. He's not atop a war horse, but a donkey. And this was to fulfill what was written in Zechariah 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, people did not expect a lowly king riding on a donkey. What they would have expected was a warrior king riding on a war horse. Whilst they knew that Jesus was the Messiah king, what they failed to understand was that he is the prince of peace. You see, somebody of significance might travel on a donkey if they were on a mission of peace, but a conqueror would travel on a war horse at the front of his army. You see, a donkey speaks of peace. It's meek. It's non-threatening, isn't it? It's not a symbol of military might. You know, I like to think of this today in terms of cars. So where I work, some of my colleagues, are um, they love cars, and every couple of years, they get a brand new car. They love cars. Now, I can tell you for an absolute fact, none of them are lining up to buy the latest Nissan Cube. Okay? <laughs> Why? It looks terrible, absolutely awful. None of them are lining up to do that. So what are they buying instead? They want to buy the latest BMWs, Audis, Teslas. And of course, I'm sure that it's because they are nice cars, they're comfortable, they're fun to drive, they're fast. But it is also about the status that comes with these cars. 
It is a status of success, of wealth, maybe even one of power. And I can tell you how I absolutely know that status is important when people are buying these cars. More than once, I've had many, many conversations with many people who absolutely insist they have to wait until they get the new license plate number to get the car. Right, exactly the same car, but it's got to have the new 73 plate on it. And why? Because it's about status. It symbolizes that you have the latest and greatest and best. But what we see with Jesus is that the donkey doesn't really give us the status that we would expect. There's a humility and a gentleness and a peace that's being displayed here. Zechariah tells us that the king is lowly. And this is an unusual word to describe a king, isn't it? In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says this. He says, the meaning of the word lowly overlaps with that of gentle, together communicating a single reality about Jesus' heart. This specific word lowly is generally translated humble in the New Testament, such as in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But typically throughout the New Testament, this Greek word refers not to humility as a virtue, but to humility in the sense of destitution or being thrust downward by life's circumstances, which is also how the Greek word is generally used throughout the Greek versions of the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. In Mary's song, While Pregnant with Jesus, for example, this word is used to speak of the way God exalts those who are of humble estate. Paul uses the word when he tells us not to be haughty, but associate with the lowly, referring to the socially unimpressive, those who are not the life of the party, but rather cause the host to cringe when they show up. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. You see, the fact that we have a lowly king is incredibly good news for us. Jesus, the king of kings, welcomes you. And not just that he welcomes you, um, he welcomes you with all of your faults, all of your failures, all of your shortcomings, all of your personal baggages, all of your regrets. He still, despite all of those things, wants to draw near to you. Dane, Dane Ortland goes on to say when referring to Jesus, he says, This is the one whose deepest heart is more than anything else gentle and lowly. This high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us like a little boy reaching out and touching a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. We picture the risen Christ approaching us with severe and sour disposition. But this is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like this. The God revealed in Scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us with one whose infitude of perfections is matched by his infitude of gentleness. Indeed, his perfections include his perfect gentleness. It is who he is. It is his very heart. Jesus himself said so. So my question is, how, how do you feel this morning in relation to Jesus today? 
How do you feel? How has your week been? Have you had a good week? Have you gotten it right? You've generally come relatively cheerful today. Or maybe have you had a difficult week? You know that you haven't gotten it right. You've, you've made mistakes. You've, um, maybe you've compromised. Or maybe, you just, maybe you, it's just been a, it's been a tough time. Maybe you think, man, I haven't really read my Bible. I haven't prayed as much. I haven't really lived up to the expectation. Maybe you have really gotten it wrong. And it's not just not that you've got it wrong, but maybe you have just totally messed up big time. Like you think, man, I've made a big mistake this week. I think, I, how, how could God accept me and love me knowing what I have done? Maybe that's you today. Or maybe you are really suffering, maybe through no fault of your own, or maybe it's a, maybe it's a bit of sin that causes suffering. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe you're here and you are broken, you are weighed down, your body is in pain. Maybe your physical health is failing you. Maybe it's your mental health today is not good. You just feel overwhelmed with stress and anxiety. Know that Jesus cares for you and is eager to draw near to you in any of, this, of these situations. You know, and just to, just to share personal testimony of where even this week God has done this with me. So I have, and I, I'm not just... I'm not just uh, over-exaggerating this as a preaching illustration. You can speak to Nathaniel, who's had hours of messages from me this week, demanding prayer. But I have probably had the most stressful few weeks I've ever had at work. Like I've had phone calls first thing in the morning. I've had phone calls last thing at night. I've been on calls for hours at a time. And it's been crazy, crazy stressful. Like, so, so stressful. Like, there's been multiple times I've said to myself, well, I don't know if I can carry on with this. And, I, and this, is, this is one of many examples where God has lovingly broken in. So Thursday morning, I was driving to work, and I was just there driving, and I was thinking, like, I am so tempted to turn my car around and go to the doctors and get signed off for stress. Like, I just don't think I can cope. This is too much. And the, the one thing that God has kept saying to me, and I'm not saying it's wrong to go off with stress, you, you know, that, that's fine, but I just, as I've been praying and asking God, what should I do? I keep having this thing of keep on fighting. I was like, Lord, that's not really what I want to hear you say, <laughs> but fine, keep on fighting. And so I was driving, and I was, I, was, I was literally on a knife edge, and I thought, man, I don't know if I can cope. And I was like, I literally cried out in my absolute weakness, Lord, help me. Help me. What do I do? What do I do? Help me. And in that moment, I powerfully felt God's Spirit come upon me. I was reminded of who I am in Christ, which is a child of God, and that no matter what is going on in, in my workplace or anything else, it is literally a grain of sand compared to, a, the, a, compared to eternity. It's nothing. Who I am in Christ doesn't change. My status before Jesus doesn't change. The fact that my Savior wants to draw near to me does not change. And, and, and literally, what was so amazing about that is I, I literally felt suddenly empowered. I was in the car, and I, the second that I stopped the car and I prayed, I got a phone call. And I literally was prepared to deal with that phone call because God had met me in my absolute weakness when I needed him. And so, no matter, no matter who you are today, God is desperate to meet with you. Okay, so despite all of this, despite all yours and my shortcomings and failures, Jesus stands with open arms wanting to embrace us and draw us into a deeper revelation and experience of his love. This is why Jesus being a lowly king is such good news. It means that he came down, he lowered himself because he wants to be close to you. We additionally see from our passage today that Jesus is riding on a donkey and he is accepting the adoration. Sorry, as he's riding on a donkey, he's accepting the adoration of the crowd, and he is acknowledging that he is the king, that he is the Messiah. And what was it that the king was expected to do? Well, he was expected to save 
his people. You see, the people wanted salvation. They were shouting, Hosanna, which means give salvation now. You see, the people were crying out to Jesus to save them. The people also cried out, blessed is the king of Israel. And what's amazing here is that the people recognize Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised savior who was to come and rescue God's people. So they cry out to Jesus, give us salvation now. Rescue us. But it's unlikely that they fully understood what they were declaring or what they were asking for. You see, the people were occupied by the Romans. They were under Roman rule. And this isn't the first time that God's people have been oppressed or under the rule of a foreign nation. And so their minds would have been on rescue. Historically, when God has saved his people, he's done so by freeing them from the oppression and slavery to a foreign nation. The salvation that was brought was one of freedom from political oppression. And so it's logical to assume that they were looking to be saved from the Roman Empire. But whilst their priority might, not have, might have been freedom from political oppression, this is not the priority of Jesus. Jesus did not come to free them from their political oppression, but to free them from their personal oppression caused by sin. You see, whatever an army, oh, sorry, whatever an enemy the Roman Empire was to the Jewish people, it was nothing compared to the enemy of sin. Now, as I mentioned to you, you might ride on a donkey if you were on a mission of peace. But it says this in Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, Jesus, the one true Messiah, the king was on a mission of peace, and it was a mission to bring us peace. And Jesus, in that moment, is telling his listeners that he is about to die. Jesus replied, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus knew he was about to die. And we'll go into this more in more detail in the coming weeks. But Jesus is later given over to the authorities. Jesus is finally crowned king when a crown of thorns is forced onto his head. He is stripped of his clothing and possessions. And he is nailed to a cross with a notice attached which reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And in the most publicly humiliating and physically excruciating way, Jesus dies. You see, the king was on a mission of peace, and it was a mission to bring you and I peace. And what is this peace? It's peace with God himself. You see, Jesus knew that the people's sins, their wrongdoing, their rebellion against God, meant that they weren't at peace with God, but they were in opposition to him. This would have resulted in their ultimate death, and it would result in our deaths as well. Rich mentioned last week the words of Caiaphas, who said, You do not realize that it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. And whilst Caiaphas was ignorant of the words he was speaking, he was completely correct. You see, Jesus died. Jesus lowered himself. He humbled himself even to death on a cross so that we don't have to. Jesus, the King of kings, dies in your place for your sins so that you can go free. And actually, this is how Jesus can embrace you and draw you into an intimate relationship with himself. 
This is how he can stand open arms and not in opposition to you. It is because he has paid the price of your sin. He paid the price to restore you into relationship with him. And that is why he can embrace you regardless of how you feel this morning, regardless of what has gone on in your life, whether it's been a good week, whether it's been a bad week. No matter what, it is not dependent on your performance. It is dependent on what he has done. And that was his death on the cross. You see, Jesus might not have appeared as the king that people expected, or maybe that they even wanted. And this is why, but this is why Jesus being a very different king is such good news to us all. And is there any other king that is so worthy of our praise, of our adoration of Jesus? No, of course not. Because no, nobody has done what Jesus has done. Jesus, by lowering himself, by humbling himself, by doing the most unimaginable thing for a king to do, was also being glorified. Verse 23 says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. D.A. Carson says about this verse, he says, in the synoptic gospels, the Son of Man title is most commonly used by Jesus, either in connection with his sufferings or in connection with his coming glory. Here, the two are fused together. Not only because Jesus' death is the first stage on his way to receiving glory, i.e. on his way to returning to the glory he had with the Father before the world began, but because Jesus' death was itself the supreme manifestation of Jesus' glory. It is not just that the shame of the cross inevitably followed by the glory of exaltation, but the glory is already fully displayed in the shame. You see, the moment of Jesus' glory was the cross. It's why we sing and why we praise him. It's why we give our lives to follow him, because he is worthy. No one has done what, nobody could do what Jesus has done, and nobody else has even tried. Jesus gives you a new identity, and he saves us, and he rescues us. In that moment on the cross, Jesus became the king that we all needed. And now Jesus turns the tables. He flips the question back to us. And we read in verses 25 and 26, it says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now you might be thinking, well, you have me up until here. Like this, you know, Jesus sounds like a pretty good guy. This sounds like some good news. It's going to benefit my life. But you're telling me that he now wants me to hate my life. I'm not too sure about that. Well, bear with me here. Let's unpack what it is that Jesus is trying to communicate. You see, Jesus is talking about loving and hating our life in this world. We live in a world where we are now more, more than ever, life revolves around self, doesn't it? Life revolves around us. We live in a world where psychologists are saying that we are more selfish and more narcissistic than ever before. And there's these constant phrases, isn't there, on social media, you know, live your best life, do what makes you happy, love yourself. And, and this is because we are an individualistic society, meaning that we are not seeking the welfare of our community or others, but we're speaking specifically the welfare of ourselves. And, but we, li we live in a world where we are the king, where we are the king over our own lives. And what I mean by this is that we are ruled by our own choices, our own decisions, and we make the choices that we believe are in our own best interest, don't we? And, and why wouldn't you? You're probably thinking, well, so what? Of course I'm going to make the decisions that are in my own best interest. 
And I, but I want to say with you that actually I agree with you here. You should be making the decisions that are in your own best interest. But let me tell you, it's not you. You are not what, you are not what is best for your life. Sam Storm says this. He says, to hate your soul or your life in this world, therefore, means forsaking selfish preoccupation with your own earthly welfare and fame and redirecting all of your energy to the fame and praise of Jesus. It means you renounce those petty personal ambitions that are designed only to draw attention to yourself and use whatever possession or power or popularity or success you achieve for the glory and praise of Jesus. By hating your soul or by hating your life, you are in fact loving it. The greatest act of genuine self-love is self-hatred. See, can you really be trusted to even do what is in your own best interest? You know, I know that I can't. I cannot even live up to my own expectations of myself. So why would I think that I, I am the best person to be king over my life? And this is the point that Jesus is trying to make. He is saying that you need to reject your worldly life, you being on the throne of your life, because it is not what is in your best interest. You need to hate it. You need to put it to death in order that you might receive it. Jesus is saying if you want to find everything that you have been looking for, everything that is really missing from your life, if you want to find true life, then you need to die. You need to die to your old life. And how do you do this? How do you die to your own life? Well, it is about making Jesus king over your life. You might remember after King Charles was crowned king, we were asked to swear allegiance to our new king, weren't we? I know that was a particularly controversial thing in the church. That was talked about quite a lot. But um, we were asked to swear to be faithful and bear allegiance to his majesty, the king. Now, I know that a lot of us didn't do this, or if we did do this, it was probably a slightly empty sentiment. I can't imagine that too many of us agreed to give our lives in full service and full <coughs> obedience to King Charles. But this is exactly what Jesus is asking of you. He is telling you to make him the king over your life, to get off the throne of your life and allow Jesus to reign. Practically, what this looks like will be declaring your allegiance to Jesus. It might mean praying and saying, Jesus, I recognize and acknowledge today and I make you the king over my, over my life. Not my will be done, but yours be done. It will mean living differently, focusing on what Jesus would have you do. It will mean serving him, being obedient to the call of a disciple of Christ. It will mean giving up things. There will be cost and sacrifice. But let me be clear, the truth of it is that you're giving up what in the grand scheme of eternity is very little in order to obtain everything. And I'm not trying to belittle or trivialize what it might mean for you to follow Jesus, but what I'm saying is that the cost does not even come into comparison with the reward. By what do you receive by allowing Jesus to be king over your life? There are so many things, but I just thought I'd list a few. Forgiveness of sin. You receive grace from God. You receive love and acceptance. You are embraced in a way that nobody else can embrace you. You are loved in a way that nobody else can love you. You are never alone. You will never be rejected or forsaken. You receive a new identity as a child of God. You receive eternal life. And as this passage tells us, you receive honor from God. So let me summarize and let me help us as we respond. Jesus being a lowly king is good news for us this morning. 
It means no matter our circumstances, no matter our state of life this morning, Jesus wants to draw us near, and there is nobody more approachable than Jesus. Jesus made a way for you and I to have true peace by dying on the cross in our place for our sins so that no barrier would remain between us and God. There is no longer anything that is stopping you from experiencing the love of Jesus. To follow Jesus means to make him king over your life, to die to yourself and to put your trust in him. And if you are a believer today, do you need to come to Jesus afresh and experience his love, his mercy, his goodness and his embrace? Are you struggling? Are you suffering? Do you need to know that Jesus is with you and that he is here to empower you and to help you? Are there areas of your life where you know that Jesus is not on the throne? Maybe you said, well, Jesus, I'm happy to follow you here, here, and here, but this bit, no, no, I just, this bit, you're wrong, Jesus, I'm right. Actually, what Jesus is calling you to this morning is to lay down that and to put Jesus on the throne afresh. And know that as you do, he doesn't rebuke you, he doesn't cast you aside, he is a gentle and humble, lowly king who embraces you and draws you in. You can come to him with your struggles this morning. You know, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, the question that is posed to you by Jesus is, will you die to your old life? Will you hate your old life in order that you can receive true life? Will you allow Jesus to be the king over your life? You know, if you want to do this today, if you want to put your trust in Jesus for the very first time, then my encouragement to you would be to pray and to declare, declare him king, declare an oath that he is now the king over your life and that you'll follow him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. God, we thank you so much that you are the king that we all need. Lord Jesus, I thank you that, God, in our weakness, Lord God, you display your perfect strength. Lord Jesus, in the mess and muck of our lives, in all of our mistakes, all of our shame, all of our sin, Lord Jesus, you still draw near to us. Lord, I thank you that all throughout Scripture you were drawing near to um, tax collectors and sinners and the lowest in society, Lord Jesus. They were the people that you sought out, the people that others rejected, the, other, the people that others cast aside. Lord Jesus, you sought them out, and I thank you that you search us out this morning. So Lord, I pray, would you help us? Would you help every one of us this morning to draw near to you and to experience the love of Jesus afresh this morning? Maybe for the very first time, maybe for the hundred thousandth time, but Lord, I pray that we would, um, we would draw near to you and experience your love afresh. Amen. Amen. Amen.